So, Rod, welcome to the Itabu podcast. Oh, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, and, and great to finally do this because we've been planning this for a couple of months. Uh, we met at yes. um, Bullhorn Live in in Sydney, and you you know Hazel, and obviously you know Miles. Yes, that's right. So um, I'm, um, one of the fortunate things about our job is we all get to travel, so we get to meet the uh, similar people and same people sometimes around uh, around the world, which is nice. Well, uh, you know, today we're going to be talking about um, mergers, acquisitions, recruitment agencies, and the industry. Uh, but you, you wear two hats. You're both part of your director for HHMC Global, as well as an onshore advisor to IMS People. Can you give us a bit of background on what you do? Yeah, we. Um, so m most of my day is spent with HHMC Global and the work that we do. And I founded that company 20 years ago. And, and we only work in the recruitment industry and we assist organizations with buy side or sell side transactions and, and, and do some advisory work as well. Um, and we work with two other organizations in a, in a reasonably formal way. Uh, one is IMS People and they're an Indian based offshoring company, so offshore recruitment services. And we work with them because we believe that offshoring and outsourcing should be part of everybody's strategy. So we're very happy to help them raise the profile of that. And they're a great company. They're one of the leaders of that business in the world. Yeah, I know Amit. I was introduced to Amit. I've, mm. I've met him at their offices when I was in uh, India. Yeah, and I'm actually going there at the end of this week. So uh, we do spend a bit of time with them and uh, yeah, like them a lot. So how did you get into the world of M&A in the recruitment industry? What, what brought you there? Um, a little a little bit of a sort of left turn, like most people who end up doing something in the recruitment industry. I come from the IT services um, space and uh, worked you know, very happily in that for a good amount of time. And when I formed HHMC, it was set up specifically to assist organisations with mergers and acquisitions in that IT services space and probably didn't appreciate how many recruitment company people we knew and um, the, the recruitment industry wasn't really well being well served at the end of the 90s and so people started tapping on our door we started doing some work in the recruitment industry and gradually it took over and that's all we do now okay great what and what, what type of agencies are you working with what what's what's the typical size yeah that does vary so um, do, over the last 10 years so we've, we've worked with some of the biggest companies in the world and we've been really pleased to have you know these global organizations as our as our clients and and what we help them with does vary um, sometimes it's helped them to sell a division of their business um, more often for the very large companies it's to help them with a strategy component so that might be to help them um, understand a particular market um, if they moved into the market how does it vary from their home environment um, what might be available for acquisition and so on um, but we don't get to do that every day and most of the time we work with the privately owned organizations that are medium in size and um, are helping them to either plan their strategy and exit or to help them buy something to help with you know growth um, and, and sometimes we work with smaller organizations as well, usually on the sell side for the smaller organizations. 
So when when you've been look, working with the larger organisations and and understanding markets, where where are you where are you typically focused on at the moment? I mean, I, I, get, I, I would make an immediate guess around China. I don't know if that would be the case, or where where do you find you're spending your yeah. time in that area? Yeah, um, surprisingly, or, or maybe by design, I'm not sure. We, we do very little work in, in Northern Asia um, in, in terms of internal to those countries. We work with organisations that come out of China and Japan and so on, but but do little, very little work in, in that area. Most people who are coming to the Asia-Pacific region are initially interested in the countries that... I suppose are a little easier to get into and so Hong Kong and Singapore are always on the radar because yeah. they understand the language, the legal system and so on um, and, and obviously Australia and New Zealand and, and Australia is the second largest recruitment market in, in the Asia Pacific and so it, it is quite attractive to people coming to the region. Um, there, are, there are always variations to that. People might have a particular requirement to be in Malaysia or because of some historical circumstance or Vietnam or India or whatever it may be. And so we do do a lot of work in a lot of different countries, um, but those that are, I, I suppose, more Western and more developed are the ones that we spend the most time in. Well, for me, I'm very interested in the, in the, um, the work that you do in terms of helping agencies plan their exits. And, and purchase other agencies. I, for me, I, my, my background is very much in the software as a service space. I understand valuation metrics in, in, that, in that area. Um, and while I've, I've worked with recruitment agencies for over a decade, decade by being a supplier to the, the industry, the actual business model itself, I'm not an expert on. So I'm looking forward to picking your brains in terms of what constitutes a, a healthy recruitment business. Um, I mean, you know, just going back to or, or looking at the, the immediate fundamentals. If you're an agency, what are the what are the typical KPIs? And I, I guess I'm asking that as as um, someone that you know doesn't. I'm not running an agency, and um, you know, what, what are the typical KPIs that are going to be used to value an agency? Yeah, well, look, at the end of the day, it all comes down to profit, but there's a lot of things associated with that. And, um, you know, we often say that the that the value of a recruitment company, because it doesn't have hard assets, it has, um, it has clients and it has, uh, you know, a candidate pool that it can work with, hopefully, and it has certainly has staff who can generate activity. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the value of the business is is very much from a services perspective um, is about the risk of earning profits into the future. So when you're valuing an organisation, you're looking at a whole range of things that are intangible like sustainability, not just the hard numbers or not just the hard structures or not just, you know, specifics about uh, client contracts. Um, and, And so I find it to be quite different and difficult to get uh, published material about how to value a recruitment company because it's it's not what they teach at university and it's not what they send to write books about if you want to know how to value a you know manufacturing business or something there's plenty of books on that but service services industries in general and and recruitment uh, companies specifically um, uh, it's a, it seems to be a little bit of a black art in terms of how to put a value on an organization can uh, can you share any general rules that you found over the last 20 years 
Yeah, sure. Look, we, we always look at three things that will determine how a recruitment company owner is going to get out of it if they sell their business. And and the first, you know, is a profit multiple. So, you know, at the end of the day, that is the, the biggest determinant of value of an organisation is, is some multiple of the profit and i was going to say normalized profit and it's profit before tax and it's usually earnings before interest and tax or ebit but um but but some profit before tax number that is agreed between the parties and um sorry what's a typical multiple there what's a low high rate oh well see that's that's the really complicated bit so in in the um australian new zealand market uh it can get as high as about seven um, or eight for the very large companies. So, for example, if one of the big listed companies was sold, you know, in the last couple of years and probably got eight, maybe even ten. Um, but for the majority of organisations that are small to medium, um, have some sustainability issues or a little bit of a lifestyle type business, then you're looking further down into the twos or threes or maybe three and a half, four type multiples. And so, you know, what is published about the big transaction does, doesn't necessarily apply to the rest of the industry. And, what, and what's, the, what's the justification for the, the, um, the, the ratio change just because it's seen that the large agencies have that sustainability, they've got the stay power because they've got the momentum? Um, well, I think it can be quantified a little more than that. I mean, we, we talk about lifestyle businesses and we talk about the owner dominant businesses being the next stage up. And then we talk about corporate businesses. And so for, for, for an organisation to be large and to generate large amounts of revenue and turn a portion of that into profit, they've got to have a whole range of things like um, they've reduced risk everywhere. So they might have a lot of contract work. They might have a lot of service work like RPO or something. Um, they have a great leadership team, you know, which is which is able to delegate and, um, you know, no single points of failure in terms of people in the organisation. Um, you know, they have technology behind them. They have great processes. Um, they have risk management so that they're not making mistakes and getting caught out. You know, so all of those investments to put all of those processes and, and that risk abatement and governance in place uh, just doesn't exist in the smaller organisations. And so um, it, it is always, uh, even though it doesn't quite often get called this, that it's always a risk assessment for a smaller organisation to say, if I acquired this company, what would the state of that company be once I'm the owner of it and how can I use that to generate profit and what are the risks of you know, revenue or people leaving um, and, and how, how therefore can I assess its value to me? Yes, makes sense. Makes sense. So yeah. that, that, that's the and so, so so you get very yeah you get very personal you know in it. So as you can see, it's not just a spreadsheet. It's a yeah. it's it's a genuine assessment of of people and process and clients and leadership capability and so on. So those and and those those then lead into you. You mentioned there were three uh, valuation KPIs, profit being one of them. But then you bring in. Um, yeah, the, the, the second the second one. Yeah, well, no, no. The, the second two components, which are just you know part of the spreadsheet, if you like, is is how what's the structure of the deal. So, um, because there is risk associated in transferring ownership of a company from one one to another, um, then if the seller, for example, wants all the money up front and wants to walk away, then the value of that business will be less. But if the owner of the business is prepared to stay and transition the business and help the new owner uh, settle it down and you know avoid risks, then the value will be higher. And so 
quite often in um, small to medium recruitment companies, there's some sort of an earnout where payment is made over time based on the achievement of objectives. And those objectives might be financial or they might not be. Um, and so, so the structure of the transaction is really important. In, in a similar way, by the way, the if the buying organisation wants to pay you in shares in their business, then the risk of that is a little bit higher. And so therefore they have to pay a little bit more. So again, that risk calculation in terms of what the structure means for both parties. Um, and then for, for small to medium companies that are privately owned, an, another component of it is actually what happens with working capital. So you, you appreciate that if a recruitment company has a lot of temps and contractors, then they have a large <laughs> flow of money through the organisation, um, usually in the form of some debt um, or retained earnings. <clears throat> and um, what happens to that is, is an important part of the of the transaction. So if the buyer wants a, a lot of that to be retained in the business, then they've effectively got to buy that and that changes the value. But sometimes um, the seller might be able to organise to take out all of their retained cash out of the business and, and therefore their take-home component is, is bigger. So, so that comes into the calculation a lot and is fairly misunderstood by a lot of people. And what, what is the third component? Well, the third one is that working capital component. Okay. So, okay. so the first one is a profit multiple. Second one is the structure of the transaction. Is it upfront or over time? And then the third one is is that whole conversation around working capital and what's going to happen with it. So, if I if we if we then talk a you know your your recruitment agency, you're at the point of of this deal, and the profit multiple looks great. The deal structure looks fantastic, and and um, you know how to deal with working capital in a healthy way. Take us all the way back to the to the beginnings of an agency. If you're going to be setting up an agency, and you're going to do it in a in a perfect way to be able to model and scale out, if there's a an agency owner that's that's looking to build their business with a with an aim to exit at some point in time, what would be the yes. the kind of perfect gestation of, of the business what would what would you be advising um, people in the recruitment startup space to or startup recruitment agencies to be thinking about to help pave the way for their future yeah look that, that's that's a good question because you know we we often hear people saying um, I'm building this to sell it um, I'm, I'm in it for a short term and then I'm out. Um, you know, I'm only here for a few years and then I want to sell it. I mean, and in most of those instances, that that doesn't happen or it doesn't go according to plan. And we, we certainly have a, a longer term view. So th there are plenty of shooting st shooting stars in the industry that, that um, after two or three years look great, but the next phase of their development is actually really just all about hard work and, it, and they plateau or they um, have some difficulties over that following couple of years. And so from a buyer's point of view, unless an organisation's probably got five or six or even 10 years behind it, um, there is still some questions that haven't been answered about the model and about the leadership team. Um, because it is extremely difficult to build a business beyond uh, about 20 people. Uh, there's a lot of things that have to happen and have to be done well to build sustainably be beyond about 20 staff. I was going to ask a question when you we, you started saying that. Also, would you would you see a how would you see the failure rate um, 
potentially increase by people going into business when all they care about is the exit? I mean, as a personal belief, I think the idea that you go into business or you're creating businesses only with the iron and exit as being a very unhealthy way to create a business. Um, yes. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, because so much changes around you, um, you know, technology changes, what the client want changes, um, the economic conditions change, you know, everything changes. And so, you know, you've got a, yeah, if you've got a single focus type um, environment, then then you can get yourself into trouble. I, I, I'm not sure that there's a, a massive um, failure rate for people who have that attitude, but I think they are not optimum and that I think there are some harsh realities that come and hit those business owners um, as they progress because um, what looks good on paper and what looks good even in the first year or two doesn't always pan out and, and doesn't always scale. Um, and so they have to take alternative strategies to, to not not only grow but to survive. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I, I think that there's another thing in there actually. A lot of people who go into the recruitment industry, it's the first time that they've been a business owner and I think they find out a lot about themselves in that period and I think one of the reasons, and this is just a personal opinion not backed up by research or anything, I think one of the reasons there are so many lifestyle type businesses is because um, you, you know their attitude changes from being very entrepreneurial at the start to maybe being a little bit risk averse once they start making some profit and um, you know they do things to protect that profit rather than to continue to grow the business. Have you read a book uh, or seen a book called uh, E-Myth Revisited? Yeah look I quote that quite often and, right. um, um, and, and we use the sustainability the lifestyle you know can you can you be away from your job your your, your business for three months uh, continuously um, and will it prosper while you're away all of those sorts of things apply to the recruitment industry and and apply to a very very big percentage of the recruitment industry maybe 60 70 percent of the industry and they, they also focus on um, that the the owner of the 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 entrepreneur is often dissatisfied in a in a previous role looks at what's going on, says, I can do this better myself. They go and do it. But of course, there were there's a whole new set of skills they need to bring to the table in order to survive. And as you say, they spend the first year or two making a lot of mistakes and learning where the gaps are, plus often making bad first hires um, as they try yes. to get the business running. I, I think, I mean, E-Myth is, I, I always recommend it to friends who are, looking to structure a startup it's a great book yeah look and and, and i mean you, you speak to a lot of recruitment company owners as do i and so many of them have built themselves a job and you know that's great and and it um gives them an income and they do more good in the industry than harm you know and all those things it's fantastic but um when it comes to thinking about equity value for their business and when it comes to exiting out of the industry that's when the, the impact of the decisions they've been making over the previous years really come and, and bite them. And if they haven't been, is it, uh, sorry, I'll go back. I'll, I'll answer a different question now, which is, you know, how, how does a recruitment company owner create wealth? Um, most of the successful recruitment company owners have created wealth a little bit each year, not by waiting for the big um, pot of gold by selling their business. And so, you know, we get a lot of people approaching us who have become lifestyle businesses, maybe without 
strategy behind that, but that's what they've become. And when they come to sell, um, they're a little bit disappointed sometimes that the value of their business is less than they expected. Tell me, um, if we looking at the industry, if we if we take you 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 have people coming to you and saying, you know, here's my business now, um, they they're looking to sell. I, I'm imagining another influencer that that you have when it comes to to valuation. I don't know if you would, if this would even get included in the three that you mentioned, where this would start to become a fourth. But is the the um, implications that come from artificial intelligence and how that will affect the industry mm. um, because any any acquirer yeah. will be looking at what the worth of the business will be in the coming two to five years and clearly we're seeing yep. an automation automation um automation change that's that's sweeping across the industry both not just in the effect on jobs but of course in the internal processes and the headcounts that you need inside an agency Plus, I guess a third aspect here being the barrier to entry to becoming an agency has become so much lower in the last uh, decade. Um, how do you see that changing the landscape when it comes to M&A? Yeah, look, look, that's a really good question. I don't think anybody knows the answer. Um, you know, we'll look back and find out whether we we got our musings uh, correct or not. Uh, there is no doubt that, that external influences like that and potential game-changing type uh, influences on the industry have an impact and they have an impact in the immediate um, decisions of buyers and, and the, I suppose, the confidence of sellers. Um, and, and so if I could take a non-technical, non-technology uh you know, a conversation from before the recent Australian elections, um, there was a, a sort of a high degree of uh, confidence that the the sort of left-leaning uh, party would get into power and they were effectively promising all sorts of um, crackdowns on uh, temporary work and uh, contingent work. And a lot of recruitment company owners who were considering buying and, and growing by acquisition were really pausing to see what the impact of that would be because that would change valuations and would change some of the strategies of what was going on in the industry. Um, it didn't happen and the uh, the other party got in and so those things never came to pass. But, but you know, that that's how an external influence can have an immediate impact. In terms of artificial intelligence, there, there is no doubt that there is going to be some great changes come to the industry just by the volume of funds that have been put into HR tech and the research that's going on and the startup companies that are out there. And you'd know that a lot better than I do. But, but you know, at the moment, there doesn't appear to be anything that's life-changing on the <laughs> or, or game-changing on the, on the horizon. Um, but you've got to think that something will come out of it over the next few years. Um, most recruitment company owners really struggle to keep up with what's going on today. And, and if something massive comes out, then it will be very, very interesting to see how the industry reacts and whether there are any sort of first mover type advantages. I, I was at a tech conference the other day in uh, Bangkok and they were, um, someone was presenting on the future of work. Uh, and I can't remember the exact time, time scale. I think we're talking five, if not 10 years. But globally speaking, the prediction is that 65% of the, 
of all work will be informal and part of the gig economy. So, you know, mm, if, you, mm. if you have, and it, it may have been, it could have been uh, um, Southeast Asia focus. So I don't have the exact statistics, but it was you know, the the shift to your Uber, Grab, um, taxi type, task rabbit world, um, which being the kind of formal gig economy, then the informal being your, you know, your street vendors cooking food. Yes. But the total... Um, that 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 market is predicted to be growing to 65%, which I thought was uh, amazing. It's a huge huge percentage of the of um, of the overall workforce, and that 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 of course will have a big influence on on what happens to um, recruiters, agencies, and the markets that they can address. Yeah, look, and and it has a it breaks down geographies, it breaks down all sorts of things. So part of my morning was spent uh, sifting through a very large number of people who responded to an Upwork job that I'd put on um, to get some to get some work done for our company, and um, I only want one person for a fairly short amount of time, and I had over fifty applicants, um, and you know that person won't be based in Australia where I am; uh, they'll be based somewhere in the world, and um, I'll get a fantastic person with great experience, and I'm I'm sure I'll be very happy with the result, and and I use that sort of thing a lot, um, and. There, there is no doubt that, you know, as staffing industry analysts and others are predicting, uh, there's a great rise in that. And the regulators don't seem to be able to keep up with that because the population wants it to happen that way. Um, people want to work flexibly and, and, and seem to go out of their way to, um, you know, to, to look for that type of opportunity. Yeah, well, you know, you've always you've always had the informal economy, and in you know, as I mentioned, street vendors, people selling food on the streets, as an example. But the the way it is now um, expanding out through technology, that that's mm. going to be very worrying for for regulators. Yeah, it, it, that's that's exactly true. And look back to artificial intelligence. I don't know what the impact's going to be. Um, I'm sure the regulators will be way behind um, and will probably rely on the emerging new big companies to look after us on the way through until the regulators catch up um, and and it'll be fascinating. One, one of the things within the recruitment industry is that I think if, if you think of all of the tasks that make up the recruitment process and all of the different ways in which recruitment, the recruitment agencies can assist an organisation to get its manpower, um, the thing that doesn't yet seem to have been touched is the very human component of recruitment, which is convincing a candidate to apply for a job, convincing the client and the candidate that they are right for each other and, and doing yes. all of that um, con, you know, convincing component that, that happens on the way through to make it happen, to make a deal happen. And um, I haven't yet seen anything that sort of approached that component. And at the core, that's what recruiters should be doing. Um, and if they're spending most of their time doing something else, then um, they're in for a shock in the future, probably. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, I mean, if we take the the positive aspects here, which is that um, technology has lowered the barrier to, barrier to entry to start an agency. Um, now, for anyone who's listening, who's an entrepreneur looking to set up their own agency, that's that's great news. If you take that aspect, which is that more people um, are able to start an agency. How do you view that? Do you view that as a as a way of giving more people opportunity, but those that 
can formalize a business and look to grow it as a proper business still stand to gain? Or do you see it that that lower barrier to entry tends to dilute it for everyone? Um, no, I think I think the last couple of decades have shown that, um, that, that well, first of all, it's shown that the barrier to entry is, is continues to be very low compared to other industries. Um, but secondly, that only the best will will emerge out of that, and and but but great companies do. Um, so if I could take another Australian example, over the last five years or so, there's been a um, a lot of transactions where the biggest companies that were operating in it, the biggest Australian-owned companies were acquired by overseas companies. And you could be a little bit despondent about that. But what has happened is that over that five-year period, there's also been some really superb Australian organ Australian-owned organisations have have grown through that period and emerged as the next crop. And um, I think that that gives me confidence that you know there can be thousands of organisations in the industry, but only the the best few will will grow to a size uh, to be meaningful and have an influence on you know their customers and and the way that work happens. And do you see a particular pattern of behaviour? That those success that those uh, success stories um, emulate. Yeah, I look at it from a from the business of running a recruitment company, not from the internals. So all of them have their own quirky ways of, um, yeah. you know, the, the, this particular way of approaching candidates or approaching clients or how they pitch or whatever it may be, or even the technology they use. They've all got their quirky way of doing that. But but I I am noticing some trends that that I think are be, be almost becoming the blueprint for how to grow um, a staffing business. And there's been some good research recently by Barry Azen of Staffing Industry Analysts in the United States, and he's got a book out on that. Um, and, and there's also some, you know, just evidence from talking to people here and, and in the UK. And um, I mean, the first is that the business owners who are so successful at helping an organisation get to 20 need to immediately learn to delegate and to um, build a leadership team. And for many business owners, that doesn't happen. But the good ones are going through and, and bringing on um, internal recruitment and learning and development and HR so that they can delegate those components, which were sort of driven by force of personality. Um, they're um, building leadership teams that are looking after the, the functioning divisions of the business. They get great office, great back office. So, you know, they go beyond a bookkeeper into getting financial assistance and genuine, uh, genuine assistance there. Um, and they're also um, focusing and, and specialising in areas like technology and marketing and, and building an infrastructure that is then enables them to scale beneath it and so, so few companies do that well, um, and the, the few that do do it well um, are really booming along in this current market. Mm -hmm. there's, there's probably one more thing, is, is that they go beyond just, um, I don't know, the, the force of personality of the owner into being um, values-led organisations, and they genuinely live by their values in everything they do in the organisation. And I think that's important to have a... Um, a high-pressure organisation in today's environment where um, there is a lot of expectation from especially the younger members of those organisations. And I guess focus and values tend to obviously interrelate. 
Yeah, that, that's right. They um, they are genuine, very, very focused in what they do because you don't have time to um, <laughs> to not be focused. There's so much to do. Yeah. Um, and and that, that whole values-driven strategy and having a very clear strategy, the strategy is articulated all the way through the organisation, but the values of the organisation are what drive the strategy and what drive the day-to-day -day actions. And when you walk into those organisations, you can see it and you can hear it, um, but it's very rare. It's very rare in any industry, uh, including the recruitment industry. But it's, and then if you you take that and walk backwards um, on the blueprint that you 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 you've uh, taken us through, then of course finances have got to be absolutely locked down. But you 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 describe the business owner easy to build up to tw to two twenty, and then hitting mm. a brick wall. But you what you describe is almost then the the process of creating mini businesses within your own business so that it can scale out with separate leadership teams within their own departments and you you let them um, take it on and and replicate and of course they can form their own mini businesses within their own mini businesses almost a I, won't, I don't want to use the word multi-level marketing that's, that's <laughs> the terminology but but um, certainly the 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 ability to allow people to take away responsibility and grow yes. their own mini businesses within the overall parent that's that's right because if you if you don't do that if you don't delegate and and give people that responsibility and give them the tools to succeed then um, you might grow to 25 people and then all of a sudden you'll turn around and find yourself back at you know 15 16 17 people again because um, you know that span of control doesn't work unless you delegate and it, it's it's we see it throughout the industry all the time and you know everybody can have a different strategy so people are in different sectors they they provide a different style of work uh, they might have a geographic expansion uh, within a narrow field they might have a broad you know um, you know diverse um, set of work but within one geography so th there's many many ways that that people can grow their businesses and there's no there's no single strategy from that point of view well as we as we um start to reach the end of the of the podcast um could could you describe the sort of companies or what's the sort of sweet what's the sweet spot for the type of company that you look to engage with if the people listening to the podcast um who would you be saying to get in touch with you for conversation um look we, we've tried to be very generous to the industry all the way through and talk to anybody, but certainly if uh, organisations that are in that sort of 30 to 60 person um, size, they usually have um, achieved quite a lot and are sometimes wondering what their next step might be. Um, and we believe we are very well placed to help them um, through that process. Um, having said that, I had a brilliant meeting this morning with an organization that is six people, seven people strong, and uh, they're looking to do some uh, small acquisitions to help them um, get a spurt of growth going. And they've got very good reasons for doing it and, you know, a good strategy behind them about how, how and why they want to do things. Um, so, you know, business owners that are, have, have got an eye on the future and are looking to achieve results and achieve their goals, uh, we'd love to talk to them. Great. Great. And how can uh, people find out more about you, Rod? Where should they go to to get in touch? Our website is, yeah, our website is hhmc.com.au. Um, our office is based in Sydney. I'm based in Perth. Uh, we have representation in uh, Auckland as well. And um, about 50% of our activity comes from outside Australia and New Zealand. So 
we we really enjoy our work in Southeast Asia, um, but North America and the UK are very important to us as well. You, are you on social media at all that you'd like to share out? Oh, <laughs> certainly uh, Twitter, uh, Rod underscore HHMC. Um, we, uh, we, we love LinkedIn and participate in that a lot. Um, and there's an Instagram and a Facebook page as well. So uh, HHMC Global is uh, pretty well spread across social media. Great. Well, I'd just like to thank you very much for talking with me today. It's been a real pleasure. And um, yeah, thanks for your time, Rod. No, it's been, it's been great. Now you ask good questions and uh, always interesting to get some of the questions, especially from a technology perspective, because you um, you have a global view and uh, you, you talk to a lot of organisations. It's, it's great. Cheers. Thanks very much.